Welcome to episode 155. Today, we visit again with Dr. Debbie Zakarian. She'll talk about her new book about transforming schools for multilingual learners. This is a wonderful podcast for school leaders, and everyone is a school leader. Welcome to the Teaching Multilingual Learners podcast. This podcast celebrates teachers who answer the calling to serve multilingual students and their families. Your beautiful smile, your beautiful life are waiting for you to shine bright. It's never too early or late to start to rise up and shine. Your beautiful smile, your beautiful life are waiting for you to shine bright. It's never too early or late to start to rise up and shine. I also know that when the best systems are in place, it compounds our work significantly. That's why it's so important for school leaders to know the research around educating multilingual learners. That's the goal with this conversation with Dr. Debbie Zakarian. We'll spotlight her new book on this topic. The first part will be on the movements and shifts in the field around MLs. You'll want to stay tuned to the end of the podcast where Dr. Zakarian will talk about the principles of effective instruction that school leaders can promote in their schools. Now, on to today's podcast. I'm so excited to welcome back Dr. Debbie Zakarian back to the podcast. She's on the podcast now a third time, and this time she's going to be talking about her book called Transforming Schools for English Learners, a Comprehensible Framework for School Leaders. This is the second edition, so you will see all the differences from the first to the second. Dr. Zakarian, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Tan. Actually, the, that was the title of the first book. The new book is called Transforming Schools for Multilingual Learners, a Comprehensive Guide. And, you know, if you want to redo that, you can, but um, we change the title as you know we're not we're so much more inclusive now and we're calling what used to be English language learners English learners now multilingual learners to really honor students languages so I thought I'd say that thank you the, the the field is moving in the right direction in this inclusive way and thinking about what students can do instead of what students can't your book is about working with school leaders or for school leaders or anyone who considers them a leader at school. Can you share a story about working with school leaders that has influenced your practice to this day? Oh gosh, that's a great question. Um, you know, I think, I think back and when we did a podcast on this, when I first started in the field, I was working with a group of unaccompanied minors and at that time, uh, my school principal really influenced my thinking about how to really do what needs to be done to help students become really uh, members of the school community. And in the high school that I worked in, believe it or not, they required students, to, I, I think the school had probably built a pool, an indoor pool, and they wanted to make sure that everyone used the pool. So one of the graduation requirements was that students had to pass a swimming test. And all of the uh, students that I worked with didn't know how to swim. And I remember, and it's, it's a funny story, I remember teaching them how to swim, putting a bathing suit on after school, going in the water with them. And, you know, that act of being in a situation that was so normal, you know, life uh, experience as opposed to academic experience has really influenced my thinking about how to build relationships with students and how important that is and how important it is to build a whole school, whole child program. And, you know, that you know, sort of serendipitous experience around this singular high school and what it required of its students has has had somewhat of an impact on my general thinking about what we should all do when we think of working with students who are new to our country, our school, and so forth. Well, you could tell the kind of person that you are uh, by that little story of the fact that you, after a long day of work, you put on a suit, bathing suit and you then took your kids to go learn how to swim so they could be successful. I mean, that that shows your love for students. Uh, well, 
I, I, I guess you're right. I did love them. I do. Um, and I, I thought it was so obviously it was really important because they wanted to graduate. Um, and then, you know, a second sort of serendipitous story is they did quite well in school and they went to really prestigious colleges and they did quite well. Um, and I had the good fortune of the support of uh, both my principal and others that I worked with. But it led to my being invited to do consulting in other schools who wanted to experience the same success that our school had. And so that began a lifelong career of consulting across the now across the country, but at the time in neighboring districts and then it broadened out to my state. Um, and you know, that's what led to um working with a number of districts around their policies and practices. Um, and it's something I still do. Well, let's move into the book then. From your consulting work, you you have a library of resources uh, behind you, and that's because you've written so many. So let's talk about this one. What's the difference between the first edition and the second one? Oh, great! Que- another great question. Um, the, actually, the first book was written in two thousand. I think it was either two thousand eleven or twelve, and I might have to look it up to remember. But at the time. Um, it included the most up-to-date research. Um, and if there were two meta uh, analysis that had been done around successful practices for English learners, these very thick uh, meta-analyses that were you know, hundreds of pages. And I drew from that and synopses that others had written and research that I had done in my own uh, work at the mm-hmm. university um, and with these districts around what would be... Uh, practical practices that you could put in place to create programming that would be successful. So the book included the research and the principles. It provided uh, a synopsis of the key historic events and a lot of the legal cases that we should be using or drawing from. And then it included various language models that one could select based on their students and uh, how to design and enact these based on whether you have low numbers of uh, multilingual learners are high, um, how to identify and discern between learning difference and disability. And at that, uh, at the time of writing the book, I had been a consultant for the Federation for Children with Special Needs and the Parent Information Resource Center. So from that work, uh, there were dis- there are distinct chapters devoted to those two topics. So the book was sort of this comprehensive guide mm-hmm. on building programming. And it was used across the country. A lot of universities use it as part of their credentialing program. A lot of states use the whole book or chapters of the book to prepare teachers and educators. So that was great. But now, 10 years later, um, there were sort of five big areas that had shifted both in the research and the practice. So the new book really integrates these five big changes um into the new edition and i'd be happy to share those with you if you'd like yeah that'd be great can you talk to us about those five shifts yeah yeah sure um so uh first of all in uh, 2015 um there's there were two federal initiatives that occurred the first one is known as the dear colleague letter of 2015 where the u.s department of education sent a letter called the Dear Colleague Letter to every state education agency, district and school, reaffirming the legal obligations that schools were required to do because it found so many districts in non-compliance. And that was uh, written in January. And it was really not to change the laws, it was to affirm you need to do this because so many had been found to be in non-compliance. And I have the privilege of working with a lot of districts who are um, under scrutiny by the U.S. Department of Justice, by the U.S. Department of Education or their state, or just want to strengthen their programming. So uh, that letter has been very helpful because it gives guidance around what schools need to do. Um, And then in December of the same year, the Every Child Succeeds Act was passed. And those two initiatives um, have really strengthen the laws and guidelines around what we should be doing or what we need, you know, need to do. 
so that's one big change of these uh, new initi- new federal uh, initiatives. And then the second is our depth of knowledge around the urgency for using a strength-based approach has really developed. So in the past 10 years, there's been tremendous research in a number of fields like education, psychology, psychiatry, and social work about the uh, importance and the urgency for using strength-based approach and culturally, culturally sustaining approaches. So the book covers the research around those concepts and what that should look like in practice. And then thirdly, um, we've become far more aware of the high and epic volume of students mm-hmm. experiencing adversity and what that means. Um, and especially in light of the COVID-19 uh, pandemic, which is a whole other fourth uh, thing, but just in terms of kids uh, living with adversity, uh, the original ACEs study that was done in uh, 2011 has been um, affirmed and um, much more is known about just this high epic volume of half of the nation's students are experiencing this. But when it comes to English learners, they're experiencing at a higher level. Just think of undocumented minors or children of undocumented families um, and the high volume of multilingual learners that live in constant fear of deportation, as well as the high volume of students living in you know deep poverty and so forth. So that's a, th- a third very important element that's infused throughout the book. Uh, the pandemic uh, that you know we've recently experienced and are experiencing, the high level of racial, social, and health issues that we are more aware of, um, and the natural disasters that have occurred in our country and elsewhere, um, the concepts around what should programming look like are based on this uh, student population and based on our experience are also included in the new edition. And then lastly, Um, we've really looked much more closely in the research about how important it is to enhance student, family, school, and community partnerships. So that's a big part of this new edition as well. So those five changes or new elements are infused in the new edition. Um, I want to circle back to the Dear Colleague letter. Um, It's just the fact that the government said, listen, colleagues, we need to uh, provide more equitable education for multilingual learners. Like we, we cannot uh, lower our standards for them because it's inequitable. And now they're saying, reminder, it's really illegal as well. Like we have a mandate, not just by the uh, by the federal government, but we have like a moral obligation to make sure that every student is successful. And so I'm happy that the government um, wrote that. I'm happy that you also included all these five shifts, in particular the strengths base. A res, um, approach to teaching, thinking about students in adversity, and of course, partnering with families. So, let's go to. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, that, uh, you know, when you bring up the 2015 uh, Dear Colleague letter, a hefty part of that letter is about working with families and what families are required, just like any family should be making an informed decision about their child. So it's about informing families, having families be part of their child's education and so forth and what that means. So it was really an important letter to send, especially because so many schools are really need to think more deeply about the ways that they go about involving families. Well, that's going to be your chapter six. So we will get through that. Um, Let's look at some of the chapters very briefly. Um, chapter one, you talked about starting with our students and ourselves. Can you talk about what you mean by that? Yeah, it's really, really helpful to learn about our students and who they are. And to also think about who we are as educators. And the chapter is really devoted to that of who are multilingual learners? What's their experience? What does the research say? What kinds of things are important for us to think about? So it starts with these, uh, it actually starts with three, stu- every chapter starts with an example to sort of get us focused on uh, the ideals behind the chapter. And that chapter begins with three students. So I'll highlight two of them. One is uh, Ernesto and the other is Manuel. And I'll begin with Manuel. They're both, both of them speak Spanish and they're both starting at this same middle school. 
Um, and so I introduced their principal and he's the one that's going to be involved in figuring out what do these two students need? So Manuel, uh, I explained, moved to the United States from El Salvador, where he had worked um, for his uncle on his uncle's bus. And he was a ticket collector and money exchanger. So he has been doing that for a number of years. He hasn't had the privilege of going to school. Uh, so he comes to the United States and he starts this new school and he's enrolled by a distant family member. Um, and the principal thinks about, well, what should I do? So uh, the principal knows to have an assessment done. Um, so he assesses Manuel's level of English and he sees that he's a beginner. So he figures I'll put him in uh, our program, which consists of 45 minutes a day of English as a second language. And the principal thinks the rest of the day, I'll put him in remedial classes. Sounds good. He doesn't speak English. Let's put him in these classes and he'll get the help he needs. So he, he does that. And then Ernesto comes to the same school from Mexico. And unlike Manuel, he's gone to a private school in Mexico where he's had an excellent education. He's gone year after year and he was voted most promising mathematician. So there's these two students um, and the principal has Manuel tested, sees that he also hasn't had any exposure to English, puts him in the same class as Manuel and thinks, well, he doesn't speak English, so he should be in these remedial classes as well. Um, and he believes that this is in the best interest of the kids and the kids start in the, this uh language assistance program, right? So I show what happens to them and very quickly Manuel is lost. He doesn't understand the language. Um, and after a few weeks of really trying his best, he cryingly goes to the principal and laments what he can't do. And the principal uh, with an interpreter decides it's in his best interest to be referred for special education. He probably has a special need. And Ernesto, the student who went to the private school, is really frustrated. His math class is way too easy. He's far and away, uh, his math development is much higher than the classes he's in. He's, uh, his peer is Manuel, who he sees is, hasn't had much exposure to school and is very reliant on him because he, hasn't, he doesn't have the background that he does. So he, um, he and his parents think that the best thing for him is to change schools. He's not in the right school. So they move him to another school where he pretty much is put in the same type of program, the 45 minutes and remedial. And I explain in the chapter that this these outcomes, uh, after a month of school, Ernesto wants to drop out totally. And Manuel just figures school really isn't for him. So what I explain in the chapter is that these two examples are not that unusual that English learners or multilingual learners, what we call now, are dropping out at a high rate, are not receiving the type of programming that they should receive. And what does that mean? And that's butted up against the reality that there are 400 different languages spoken amongst the nation's multilingual learners. And while Spanish is certainly the most common, you can see how it just because students speak Spanish doesn't mean they have the same experiences. They're certainly not monolithic as Manuel and Ernesto exemplify. So then, you know, what kinds of things should we be thinking about? And I talk about uh, students that have had rich prior literacy and schooling experiences and what that looks like and what the research says versus students who haven't had the privilege of that and what the research says and what kinds of things we should be doing. Um, and I also look at um, not, not just students with rich literacy backgrounds, but also these concepts of students experiencing adversity, the COVID-19 pandemic and all that we've experienced and highlight some of the research findings around that. Um, and then I talk about, well, who are teachers and who are leaders and who are we? And why is that so important to think about? And the reality is most educators are white and middle class, whereas many, many English learners or multilingual learners are not and are not middle class. Many live in high levels of poverty. 
And the other dilemma is most educators, regardless what role we're in, we've not been trained in this field. So what does that mean? And what kinds of things should we be thinking about? And that's pretty much what the first chapter introduces. I mean, it breaks my heart thinking about Manuel and Ernesto because you're right, there are so many Manuels in Ernesto. And really this book is for teachers and leaders uh, to help them make sure that students who are our Manuels and our Ernestos in our different districts are served at the highest level because uh, it's quite a tragedy what happens to them. What the principal did, he did because he thought it truly was in the best interest of the students. And I've worked with many, many principals and I have yet to find any really that don't care about kids. You know, it's, it's like, I think we tend to blame someone and uh, Ernesto and Manuel are sort of composites of what I've experienced. And for the most part, people don't do it because they just want to throw kids in a, a situation that's going to, have a bad outcome. Um, it's really because we might have limited understanding of what really would serve students well. It's like that Dr. Maya Angelou quote where she said, uh, you know, do the best until you know better. And when you know better, do better. It's like, exactly. It's like we teach the way we're taught and we make decisions based upon what we think is best. But now that with your book, when we know better, we can do much better. Let's continue to chapter two. You talked about integrating regulations and principles. What are those regulations and principles you were referring to? Oh, gosh. Well, I can break it down into three. I, the chapter introduces three big ideas. The first is what are the key historic events that led to the laws and regulations? Um, what are the key principles of language second language acquisition or third, fourth language acquisition if it's really multilingual learners or more? You know, what are those principles we should think about? And then what are the various models of um, language assistance? So the chapter is broken up into those three sections of answering those questions. Um, and each provides, you know, a pretty strong depth of um, information around what are the laws? What were the events leading to them? What are the key principles? And what are the models? So that as you as an educator, or hopefully a team of educators are making those important decisions, you have a good idea of what these models are and what the basis behind them is. Would you talk to us about some of the models and what they offer? Yeah, sure. There's uh, three types of models. And what's uh, helpful is knowing the laws briefly. Um, there are many, many famous laws. A lot of them came about as Supreme Court decisions or U.S. Uh, state court decisions. The most known is Lau versus Nichols, uh, which took place in San Francisco and ruled under federal law that students must be given some type of language support until they're able to do ordinary classroom work in English. So that's a big law, big big cited law. And the other one that's the most cited is the Castaneda versus Picard, which uh, took place in um, Texas at the Raymondville district where the principal, um, or where the district should I say, um, was brought to court by a father of two kids who said that the district wasn't treating their kids equitably. And though they lost in the uh, US district court or U.S. state court, they uh, won in the U.S. Court of Appeals. And what's required under that law is that whatever we do must be proven to be, if you know, sound, based on sound research, properly resourced with educators and materials so that you're using a model that's uh, proven to be successful, you're resourcing it well, and then you have to show that what you do works or you make changes. So the three most common models based on that are bilingual models that are uh, sustained or are immersion models where the goal is that students will become fluent in English and a target language or a dual language. So they're often referred to as dual or two-way models. Um, and those have been widely researched and they're gaining a lot of popularity because they've been found to be so successful. Um, 
and probably two of the most known scholars in the research on them is uh, Virginia Collier and Wayne Thomas. And they've done these long scale, large, long term, large scale research on these models and have found that students do extraordinarily well. And they use that uh, adjective uh, adverb ex- extraordinarily, right? So, uh, you know, that is uh, gaining a lot of momentum. And also because uh, many states are, uh, giving a distinguished award of the seal of biliteracy when students are biliterate. There's a, a renewed interest in that. So that's one model, um, although within it are various iterations. So some schools may do a 90-10 model where 90% of their day is spent in one language, 10% in another, and then it it reduces as kids become more proficient. Although the most common usage of it is a 50-50 model where half of the day is in one and half in the other. Um, a second model is transitional bilingual models where students start learning in their uh, home language or primary language until they learn English and then they transition fully to English. And then the third model is using English solely to learn English. So those are the three umbrella models. Um, so, uh, there may be a, a sheltered, some people will use that. Oh, I'm using a sheltered model of instruction and they may be using any one of those three. It may be a sheltered, uh, two-way model in which the sh- word shelter is used to define, uh, evidence-based models that are known to be s- successful. So, uh, what I talk about in the book is regardless which model is chosen, educators have to really think about the laws and regulations. So you have to show that whatever you do is an accepted model by your state and that it really accomplishes um, the goal of students becoming proficient in English until they're able to do ordinary work in English like their peers or as their peers. Um, And you have to show that you're properly resourcing it and that whatever you do is proven to be effective. It's funny how if you want to see a school change, all you have to do is sue them and then that'll get them to move pretty quickly or at times be resistant, but that'll get the attention on the media to say, look, the school is doing this. We have uh, brought them to the legal process and let's see if they make changes. But with that attention, other school districts are like, okay, maybe we shouldn't, we should heed a different way. Uh, yeah, and uh, you you make a great point. And some schools, which are big schools, let's say there's a big urban district that's found to be in non-compliance, the U.S. Department of Education and U.S. Department of Justice may say, why has the state education agency who oversees this big city or small dis- smaller even smaller district, why haven't they helped remediate this. So what I've often, who I've often worked with are both entities because um, it may well be that the district itself isn't doing the right thing, but may not know what that means and what that should look like. So it it sometimes involves both agencies that are supposed to be involved in really making sure that kids get what they are required to get. Looking at the three models, the bilingual model, transitional bilingual, bilingualism, and English to to learn English, I think it's, I grew up in a time where it's just ESL, where you learn English to learn English, and I felt like um, now looking back, now currently there are so many Vietnamese, uh, not many, but there are Vietnamese bilingual programs out there, and I'm like, I would be a different person if I was able to... uh, keep and maintain and sustain my Vietnamese. Uh, But I'm happy that there are programs now and that the research is really saying, like, this is the best model of instruction for students. It's equitable, but it's based upon research where it says um, students can learn another language while they grow their original language. They're one of their original languages. And both languages can grow as well. And they can be successful in both. Yeah, you raise a great point. And, you know, what your experience speaks to the heart of it is you came to school with this tremendous linguistic asset that wasn't tapped into. And so, you know, there are so many issues related to it around how to really 
amplify your wonderful identity as a person, as your cultural identity, your language identity, all of those um, rich experiences that you've had, you know, may be defined as you speak this language, but uh, truly dual language programs uh, really amplify students for who they are and what they bring and who their families are and what they bring. Uh, but the reality is that there are many, many schools that don't have the numbers literally of Vietnamese or other language speakers to start programs like that. And what I talk about is in the absence of that, and there are certainly many, many schools who represent this. So they may have a, a lot of Spanish speakers, but they also have speakers of other languages. So what do they do? Right. So part of it has to think, well, how might I employ a student's home language? What might that look like? And I talk about various models where thinking about how to make sure that um, we're either hiring or utilizing the benefits of another person who speaks that student's home language, uh, that's very important to think about. And I provide a lot of examples um, for that. The other is when parents indicate that they aren't able to understand or compre comprehend information in English, schools are obligated to provide uh, translators who are fluent in their language. And that's a very important uh, legal obligation. Let's move to talking about uh, the components, which is chapter five, components of language acquisition program. Like, what, has, what have you found to be those successful components? Oh, th okay. That's a, uh, another one of your great questions. So um, that chapter really looks at what constitutes high quality lessons. What would that look like? So regardless what type of program a student is placed in, whether it's a two-way or dual language or transitional or English to learn English, um, really what kinds of things should we be thinking about to make sure that lessons are effective? And so in that chapter, I provide nine principles around what types of elements should we make sure that we use to um, provide high quality lessons and um, that that's what the chapter looks at. And I'm happy to sort of highlight the nine if you'd like. Yeah. Um, so let me uh, give you that information. Um, and really it's based on a lot of research around what helps students be successful in school, uh, particularly obvi obviously multilingual learners, what would constitute um, high quality effective lessons in which students have the opportunity to flourish right, in school. So um, it's grounded in the research. And the first principle is build positive relationships with students that, you know, what we've learned in the past 10 years is just how important it is to have solid, uh, strong relationships with our students. And students greatly benefit from having that trusted, reliable relationship with their uh, teachers and others who work with them. Um, and it's amplified when, and I, I talk about this in the chapter and give practical su uh, suggestions, when we're curious about our students and we really want to know their prior experiences, um, when we have unconditional regard for them, um, and when we take time to learn about their interests, their hopes, their dreams, their concerns, and more, so that we can infuse those into the lessons we teach. So that first principle is an important one and one that um, is obviously a first one is building relationships with kids. And in that chapter, I provide protocols for what kinds of questions would be helpful to ask to, to build those relationships. Um, the second one is, it's really important and we're finding more and more and a lot of the research that I've done is on this, is to connect academic learning with issues that are socially relevant for our students. So how we can make learning meaningful is by helping students find relevance in what we teach them. So what we wanna look at is how we can make lessons personal to students' lives. And an example that I use in the book is a well-known um, award-winning author, Gus Lee, who uh, is the author of a book called China Boy. And uh, he writes about when he arrived in the ninth grade, 
Um, he met with his English language arts teacher who was fluent in English at that time. And the teacher told them that they were going to be reading the book Pride and Prejudice by uh, Jane Austen. And she said that the book takes place in 1813 and is about a wealthy British <laughs> British family. And Gus Lee, who's, you know, growing up in a very poor section of his community uh, and had really thought about dropping out of school, just thought, oh, check, this is why I don't want to be in school. And so after class, he told the teacher, you know, I'm dropping out of school and like what you've just assigned just affirms that I should, I don't belong here. So she took the time to say, well, have you experienced uh, pride or prejudice? And he said, you know, I've experienced a lot of prejudice. And he, t- she, he tells her what he's experienced and she pretty much builds a relationship with him, tells him how much he's needed in class and how much his prior experiences are really important and that she's going to infuse that into the lesson. So she found a way to use the content, to connect the content to issues that were socially relevant to Gus Lee. And that's what I talk about in the in the book. And it really prevented him from dropping out of school. And he credits her for keeping him in. And I'll add that he became uh, one of the attorney generals in California. So you can see, you know, he found meaning, not only did he find meaning in learning, but he stayed in school. Um, and a third one is, you know, we really want to build our build on our students' prior background knowledge. And I think all of us are realizing how important that is. So just as Gus Lee's teacher connected the book to his prior experience, we need to do that in all that we do, not just their prior academic, but their prior social, cultural language, you know, all of the wonderful backgrounds of students we want to build with. Um, fifth, fourth principle is use cooperative learning. And uh, that's where the heart of most of my research is on, is on the importance of cooperative learning, especially in heterogeneous classrooms and what that should look like. And as much as we all know that cooperative learning is important, it is not easy. And I talk about some of the complexities in the chapter and how to remedy those. So that's a fourth principle. Um, and then, you know, how to go about making sure that we do it. And just as a first tip, it's very important to start with a paired and then go to group. And paired experiences are great because they give multilingual learners the the small opportunity to work with one person and really experience and explore language, which is great and ideas. Um, And then of course, a fifth principle is that anything we do has to be tied to the student's current level of proficiency, regardless what language we're teaching. So if it's in a dual language, we want to target to both uh, target instruction to their level of language development in in whatever the language is. A sixth one is that we really want to plan homework and any assessments we use for uh, and with multilingual learners by factoring in their current level of proficiency. So we don't want to send students home to do homework in a way that's novel and something they haven't experienced. We really want to capture uh, the assessments that we use and involve students in the assessment process as well. So that that's explained. Um, the seventh one is we want to help students see learning by offering them the overarching objective and the day's language and content objectives. So that... Uh, There's been a lot of research on the importance of helping kids see what they're going to learn visually. So by posting those on the board, and I give lots of examples. Um, The eighth of the ninth is that we should target vocabulary instruction so that it's helping. I call it TWIPS, but we want to target vocabulary instruction so that we help students see the terms, words, idioms and phrases that they need to know to be able to learn the content that we're teaching. And then uh, lastly, there's been a lot of um, research done on how learning involves thinking explicitly about thinking as learners. So what do we need to do to think as learners and how helpful it is to have visuals that accompany how we want students to remember 
to analyze, compare, so on and so forth. So that's the ninth and last uh, principle. So all of these nine are really part of whatever model we choose, it should include those nine principles. I just feel like these components of language, uh, language acquisition and language development is just really not just for multilingual students, but for everybody. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. A lot of the work I do, you know, I've, I don't want to say I've expanded out because that's not really a good example of it, but a lot of the work I do is with schools that are experiencing uh, students who aren't successful for whatever reason. And I use these nine principles with a lot of schools that are found to be in, underperforming or would like to strengthen their outcomes. And people love these principles because they're not hard to implement but they're wonderful to think about with a group. So uh, in terms of professional development, you could select any one of these and really help um, you, you know, do individual research on it, do a book study on it, bring a group together. So um, they're really wonderful elements that everyone feels very strongly about. They wanna build strong relationships with kids. They wanna obviously help kids with their vocabulary and so on and so forth. And what I found working with schools that are um, experiencing these challenges, students do so much better. So, so much better. I mean, just thinking about if I could group them in into the categories, it'd be one, be like relationship, like social emotional learning, like connecting to prior knowledge, uh, connecting the content to students and making it relevant, building relationships, right? And another one would be like language, um, and then another one would be like cooperation, like that engagement with, with students. And so it really, uh, these nine components, if we, I wish I had these, I wish I knew about them when I was my, uh, teaching my first year of teaching, even one, it would be, I would be such a, uh, I would have served students more meaningfully than I did when I first started. So say we all. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I want to go back to find my first year cohorts, the first two years. I'm like, listen, I'm sorry. Can I redo this? Can I can I just redo it for your kids, please? And so, maybe this is why we do the podcast. Well, we're almost at, uh, close to that end uh, part of the podcast. Let's do two more questions. Um, we can't do look at chapter five, uh, seven, and eight, but we can look at chapter six, which is about family engagement. And we'll end there. Can you tell us about family engagement? I, in the in the um, earlier chapters of the book, the laws really require families to be engaged. It's not that um, we're doing it because the laws tell us to. It's also the research tells us how important it is, not just to build relationships with students, but to really build partnerships with families. And schools that have strong partnerships with families have been shown to have far better outcomes with students that students come to school, are engaged in school when families are engaged with us. So I show a lot of the research around what happens when, um, what positive things happen when we engage with families. And in uh, the chapter that you're referring to, it's not just the research, but I provide a lot of wonderful examples of um, districts across the country and what they're doing. And I just find it so fascinating to have the privilege of interviewing and meeting with um, educators from different parts of our country to see what they're doing and bring that concept of working closely with families. And uh, I think all of us feel that we want to do it, but we may not know how to do it. So the chapter provides a lot of information around what types of questions to ask initially of families so that we start off by building relationships with them. And then what types of uh, activities we can do with families to really help them be partners with us. And one of the um, federal requirements are that we have working groups that really help us build our language assistance models and who better to ask than families, right? So um, in the chapter, I provide some examples of what schools are doing to build those strong partnerships with families. And um, it's really wonderful to read, uh, for me at least, 
to learn about and see what other schools are doing to kind of give me an idea of what might work in my particular context or uh, in my case with districts I'm consulting with. So, uh, you know, I've had the privilege of meeting with people from all over the country and hearing what they do is always wonderful to share with others. And you actually have a lot of those stories in your previous book called Beyond Crisis with yep. Dr. Margot Gottlieb and Dr. Margarita Calderon. And so you've really shared how like we can go beyond the crisis when we partner at the community level, at the classroom level, and at the school level. And so those stories are all- Yeah, in, in that book, we highlighted uh, amazing educators from various parts of the country. Uh, in this book, I had the privilege of interviewing people from different school districts and what they did. Um, and I interviewed, uh, or we include, or I include um, a student who is at Brockton High School in Massachusetts and, uh, you know, show how families get involved by involving students. And uh, what I talk about in the book is how important it is to really look at a school's mission and vision for achieving their mission. And Brockton is a great example because part of their mission is to empower students. And part of that empowerment is empowering families so that they can help their students be empowered. And uh, the example I use is of this wonderful student, Montserrat, who um, attended the dual language program in uh, the Brockton schools, the Juntos um, program at the Mathers uh, Elementary School. And then she went to a heritage program. And so at the dual language program, they have these meetings with families every year to recruit new families to enroll their students in uh, the dual language program. And they invite students like Montserrat to come and share their experience with them. So you, you can see the district's vision is empowerment. This program invites prior students to come and talk about why they like the dual language program. And Montserrat was one of the speakers and she spoke in Spanish and translated her speech into English. And I use her speech in the book. Um, and then, you know, there's another district, uh, Prince George County in Maryland, who uh, I highlight. And uh, Dr. Jennifer Love is the supervisor of language access. And she talks about how since the 1990s, the school has really been involved in beefing up uh, language interpretation so families have access. And of course, since the 90s, lots of um, technological advances have been made. And so now they use e-blasts and all kinds of uh, videos and um, various strategies to make sure that families are involved, which is great. Um, and I profile uh, Becky Core, who's a team lead and the Douglas County Schools in uh, Colorado, and her school district covers a wide swath of geographic locations. And the work that they do to have family liaisons work and meet with families, they have coffee chats, and they do all kinds of wonderful things that I highlight in the book that any school district can use. And uh, what Jennifer Love does, you know, we can all learn from. So the ideal behind that chapter is how do we really team with families and help them become empowered so that they can uh, be, be, help us connect with their child and help their child be successful in school. If we really are looking for an asset-based approach to instruction, uh, one of the criteria would be how uh, integrated and how collaborative we are with our parents, right? if, because they have assets that they can bring to the school. Let's end with this closing question that I always um, ask, but I, I only ask it for the most prolific, the most uh, contributory authors, experts in the field. Uh, you've been doing this for decades and you can see the, the books behind you. Um, Oprah says, Oprah has a thing on her columns. She said, this I know for sure. After years of working in this field, contributing, and being a light for us, what do you know for sure about working with multilingual students? I know for sure that we can't do it alone, that we can't work in a silo, that we are far better off when we work in partnership with others. What a wonderful way to end because you are helping us not work in silos, but work together. And you are part of 
the team that's helping us work better together for multilingual students. So Dr. Debbie Zakarian, thank you so much. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Before we recap this episode, I have a favor and an invitation. My favor is to ask you to please review this podcast if you found it valuable so that teachers like you become inspired and informed in their advocacy work. My invitation is for you to enroll in my scaffolding learning or teacher collaboration courses. I've taken the principles that I've learned from experts in the field. I've applied them to my classes. I kept the things that worked and I'm sharing all of them in these courses. I hope you consider enrolling. Now onto our recap. Whatever the program model that your school district adopts, remember to include these nine principles of highly effective instruction for MLs. One, build relationships. Two, make learning relevant to students. Three, build on students' prior knowledge. Four, incorporate cooperative learning. Five, teach at students' level of proficiency. Six, plan homework and assignments at students' level of proficiency. Seven, plan specific content and language objectives for each lesson. Eight, teach vocabulary. She has something called TWIPS, which stands for terms, idioms, words, and phrases that will help students be successful in their classes. And finally, nine, teach students to think metacognitively so that they can transfer these skills into different settings independently. And this is how we transform our schools. Thank you for listening. I'll see you soon. Be safe and be rooted in peace. It's your turn to play Traffic Light Teaching. Tweet at me either your red, yellow, or green light from this particular episode. Your beautiful smile, your beautiful life are waiting for you to shine bright. It's never too early or late to start to rise up and shine. Never too early or late to stop